Well, thanks for joining us this afternoon. On behalf of Galderma and the Rosacea brand team, I'd like to welcome you and thank you for joining us today. Uh, Galderma has a rich history of supporting rosacea, and we certainly appreciate and recognize and the need to support the physician assistants and the mid-levels. As we know, you're a vital part of treating these rosacea patients. We're especially excited about being able to offer these rosacea patients new solutions to treat rosacea. In the past, you've been able to treat the papules and pustules with a variety of products. But now we're able to offer two solutions for the two most common signs of rosacea, the papules and pustules, but also now the erythema. And today we're lucky enough to have Dr. Julie Harper, who practices in Birmingham, Alabama at the Dermatology and Skin Care Center. That's her practice. Is also well known in the rosacea world. Uh, she's a founding director of the American Acne and Rosacea Society and has a, a ton of work in clinical research with rosacea patients as well as acne patients and sees a ton of these in her private practice. So she's gonna, we're very lucky to have her today to walk us through the evolution in rosacea therapy. Uh, before I bring Dr. Harper up, you also have a evaluation form at your seats. So please fill that out if you can and hand it in to one of our volunteers at the end of the meeting and we greatly appreciate it. So without further ado, Dr. Harper, thank you very much for having us today. Thank you. Uh, first of all, I'm going to do a little bit of um, housekeeping. Please keep in mind that this is a promotional event. So this will be a little different than the CME that you've been doing earlier today. There's some still very valuable information in this slide deck, and I hope that it will impact the way that you treat your rosacea patients. But keep in mind, everything that I say today has to stay on the FDA label. So I am happy to entertain any of your questions at the end of the talk. But if I give you an answer kind of like this, you know, that's not the way the product is indicated. Please don't take offense at that. Just meet me in the hall later after the, the session is over and I, and I will answer that. But as, as far as while I'm up here on the platform, I really like my medical license uh, and my freedom. And so I am going to stay right on the FDA label. So with that in mind, let's get started. Um, rosacea, maybe we don't think of that as being the hardest thing that we treat. But I saw a woman in clinic yesterday with rosacea. We don't have it quite as well controlled as I would like. And I can tell you, she was really bothered by her rosacea. Do you see patients like that? Okay. Um, as I look around the room, this seems like a relatively young group of people. Relatively young uh, is taking on a different meaning all the time with me. How many of you have been practicing for more than 10 years? A lot of you, in fact, the majority of you. Well, what we're gonna be talking about today is really this evolution in, in treating rosacea. And when we think about that, I'm gonna stay on this slide for just a minute. I want you to think, those of you have, who have been practicing for a while, think about maybe even two or three years ago, if a person came in with red face, so that rosacea that's just the redness, how did you treat that? And then I want you to think back maybe closer to even 10 years ago or so, and think about papulopustular rosacea, and think about how you managed that. And so if you're wondering why are we titling this the evolution of rosacea therapy, if you think back a little bit, you'll see why. Because we've had some changes in, in what's available to us to treat rosacea. Now this to me pertains a little more to oratia than it does Mervasa, but there's a story that I love. I'm not a great storyteller, so I may get this wrong. But the story goes that there was a family and it was the grandmother, kind of the matriarch, the mother and the granddaughter. And they were well known, they had this meatloaf recipe that they were so well known for. And it was passed down through generations, so it was time to teach the youngest of them how to make meatloaf. 
So they put in all the ingredients, and they formed the meatloaf, and then they cut off the ends of the meatloaf. And the daughter, being smart, said, why don't we cut off the ends of the meatloaf? And the mom said, I don't know. And then asked her mother, why don't we cut off the ends of the meatloaf? And the grandmother said, well, I only had a short pan. I don't know why you cut the ends of the meatloaf off. And the moral of the story there is sometimes we continue to treat things in a certain way just because that's the way we've always done it. And I mention that when I think about using doxycycline to treat rosacea. And I ask you, and, and you can shout it out if you know an answer. I'm not sure there is one, by the way. What's our pathogen in rosacea? Is there a pathogen in rosacea? So I challenge you just to think about the way this treatment is evolving, the way our understanding of the pathogenesis is evolving as we go through these next few slides. Okay, so rosacea, how does rosacea present to us in clinic? Remember there are four types of rosacea. There's ETR, erythematic telangiectatic rosacea. I'm just always proud when I can get all of that out without having to try a couple of times. So ETR, papulopustular rosacea, ocular rosacea, and phimetous rosacea. So that ETR is that person who has incredibly sensitive skin. You ask them what they wash their face with and they say what? Water. Somebody said it. That's all. They say I can only use water on my face. So that person with incredibly sensitive skin. Now whether or not that transitions into papulopustular rosacea, I'm not sure we know the answer to that. But we do know that what starts out as sensitive skin and maybe, maybe transient flushing and blushing eventually becomes that persistent facial erythema. Now the face stays red, almost swollen, edematous, tender, uh, hot. Those are the ways people will describe that persistent facial erythema of rosacea. And then on top of that, papules and pustules. When we talk about Merveso today, what we're talking about is that persistent facial erythema, okay? So when we talk about this product being FDA approved for redness, it's not indicated specifically for flushing and blushing, it's for persistent facial erythema. So what is Merveso? Merveso is a topical agent that has 0.5% bromonidine tartrate. This is an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist. And if you're like me, you think, mm, bromonidine, clonidine, don't we use this to lower blood pressure? Aren't they vasodilators? Well, they are centrally but in the skin, they're vasoconstrictors. So it stands to reason if we talk about a condition where we have vasodilation and ongoing persistent erythema, that if we could put a topical vasoconstrictor on there, then we could lessen that facial redness. Uh, the vascular changes of rosacea, as we mentioned, may first manifest themselves as just intense flushing, maybe more flushing to a trigger factor than somebody without rosacea would have. But with time, that goes on. And then the bottom paragraph here says, and I think this is so true, until now, what have we really had that we could treat that with? What have you guys used? I know you've got a mouthful of lunch right now. Before you had Merveso, how were you treating this? Okay. Other people want to offer anything? There's not a wrong answer there. But the point is we haven't had anything specifically FDA approved to do this until now. Let's look at some pictures, and I'll mostly be quiet here. This is going to run through several pictures, a couple of different people, and you can see baselines on the left, and then it's going to tell you the hour on the right there. Now, this guy's kind of interesting because, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, in these studies, both the clinician got to rate erythema, so did the patient. This patient considered this a treatment failure. 
So just looking at that, he did not rate himself as improved enough to be a success. So kind of keep that in mind as we look at, at the results from the studies. And then the next one is looking at uh, photography that looks at blood flow. So that showed up well. You guys could see the, the, the difference there in those patients. So let's go ahead now and talk about the clinical trials. So phase three. So remember that phase three trials are the trials that are done in order to get a product FDA approved. And so they have to be done identically. It's usually two parallel studies that are identical. They're randomized trials. They are uh, vehicle controlled studies. In this case with Merveso, there was a four week active arm of the study and then a four week follow up where no one received the active treatment. Why would we do that? Why would there be a four week follow up? There's, I think there's a couple things that people think about when they look at a product like this. One is rebound, right? So we've got a vasoconstrictor. Do we need to be worried about rebound at all when we stop the drug? We'll also think a little bit about tachyphylaxis. Over time, is this a drug that's going to start out working really well and then gradually over time lose its effect? So I think that's why that four-week follow-up period was in there. Now, it's important also when you set out on a study like this to know what you're aiming for. And the primary endpoints have to be set before the study starts. In this particular case, the FDA said, yes, we want to see a clinician's erythema assessment, and we want to see improvement in that scale, but that is not enough. In this particular study, the patients have an equal say. So there's also a patient self-assessment. These are static scales. You can look at these. So they started about a three or so. They have to come down two grades, and the clinician has to agree with the patient in order for this to be a treatment success. So I think you can see that's a pretty high bar. And this is the primary endpoint. Again, a two-grade composite improvement by both the CEA and the patient score. The secondary endpoint is interesting. How often have you seen a study where one of the endpoints is day one, 30 minutes? That doesn't happen very often, but that's the secondary endpoint. Has anyone done this in their own practices where you put, maybe you have a sample of Merveso and you put it on in the clinic and then you wait for a little bit to see a result? Raise your hand if anybody has done that. Yeah. So we've got the capacity, because we've got this quick onset of action, we've got the capacity to do that. Well, here are some results from the primary endpoint. So this is day 29. Again, somebody called these earlier the, the lollipops. So they look like little balloons or lollipops here. But this is showing us how many people had a two-grade improvement in both of those scores at each time point across the x-axis here. Um, so at hour three, you can see the difference. 28% of those on Merveso had a two-grade improvement in both scores. And then at hour six, hour nine, and hour 12. We got a great statistically significant difference here between the active and the vehicle. And I can tell you, if this would have been a one-grade improvement, the number would have been higher. Also, if it would have just been just the clinician score or just the patient score, the number would have been a lot higher too. But we have to go with what that primary endpoint is at the outset of the study. And here's an example of that. So a person, I think this is a nice picture because we can see it right across the day. So baseline, hour three, hour six, hour nine, hour 12. When do you feel like you see some redness starting to come back a little bit? About 12 hours, yeah. And I think that's different for different people, but I think we're starting to see a little bit come back here at about hour 12. And we didn't check at hour 16. Everybody did get to sleep during the study, so that was beneficial. And then this is the 30-minute effect. So this is 30 minutes on day one. Now, this x-axis is different. This is not different hours in one day. We've got day one, day 15, and day 29. But even at 30 minutes, we have statistically significant greater improvement or reduction in redness in both of the scores 
in just 30 minutes. I'm not sure why this got better over time, but it did. It certainly didn't lessen over time. There was not evidence of tachyphylaxis. If anything, it got better throughout the study. And this is a picture again. I think we in dermatology love our pictures here. So this is baseline and then just 30 minutes. We always want to be fair and balanced when we're talking about these types of products. So we've talked a lot about efficacy. How about adverse events? And there were some. And I think this is a place where we've all learned when we use this in the clinic. There are a small group of people who can find this product irritating. There's a small group of people, about 1% of people in the studies, that are actually allergic to some component of the drug. And so we've learned from the outset that you should tell patients, you know what, you may experience a little irritation or redness from this. Heck, overall, though, if you like the results, keep using it. If it's a contact dermatitis, clearly they're not going to keep using it. So if you have a symptom that causes you to stop, fine. But I, I think it, it's important for us to set that expectation 100% of people may not end up staying on this, but a high number of them will, but set that expectation up front. And you can see the, the AEs here, when we first looked at this data, many of us said, what, erythema, flushing, that's rosacea in and of itself. And that may be true, but there are, again, a small group of people here, about 5% of people who did report that more in the Merveso arm of the study than they did with the vehicle. And then this is an interesting slide too. So looking at, when you look at that patient self-assessment during the study, were there people who said that their redness was worse on day 15 or day 29 than when they started the study? And there were a handful, but if you look at this closely, you can see that there were a handful with the vehicle too. And I think there's a couple of take-home messages here, one of the biggest being rosacea is something that fluctuates itself. So there are going to be days when a person is more red than another, and that happened with both the vehicle and with the active arm of the drug. So conclusions from this, Merveso gel significantly reduced erythema at the primary endpoints. So that was day 29 at hours 3, 6, 9, and 12. And it also reduced erythema significantly at the secondary endpoint, which was 30 minutes on day one. And the once daily treatment was safe and it was well tolerated. Now let's look at the long-term studies. So that's all just the pivotal studies. Long-term studies, as you know, 52-week, one-year studies are really focusing on safety. Is there any new safety signal that's going to show up when we use these products for 52 weeks? There are also more real-world world studies. So people in the studies are also using other medications with it. It is not a, a vehicle-controlled trial. It's not a comparative study. This is just Merveso, and it's over a 12-month period. And I think I just said everything that's on the next slide here, so we'll go on. It's important to know, because when we're talking about rosacea, uh, one of the first things that will always come up is, well, hold on. You know, my patients have redness and they have bumps. Can I use this in combination with other medicines? Well, of course, I can't talk too much about that because the product is not FDA approved as combination therapy. But in the long-term studies, in fact, you can see here on that, the second bullet there, about 30% of the subjects in the study, <clears throat> excuse me, we're using other medications for inflammatory lesions of rosacea. And that included things like topical metronidazole, topical azelaic acid, and the tetracycline antibiotics. So at least we've got some good safety data of using those in combination. The harder question to answer, and I, we probably would find several different answers to this in the room, is, well, how do you do that? You know, how, how are you positioning your topicals? And I'm not sure we have a right answer to that right now. The most common adverse events, again, in the long-term study were pretty much what we saw in the pivotal trials. They were things like flushing, erythema, rosacea. 
uh, skin burning sensation. And again, that contact sensitization appears to be in about 1% of individuals who use the product. Uh, this is looking, again, at a 52-week study. The study started out with about 450 people. It's hard to keep 450 people in a study for 12 months, and there was some dropout over time. A small portion of that dropout was due to adverse events. It was about 15 or 16 percent of people who dropped out due to AEs. Uh, and again, those were the things that we've already mentioned. So redness, rosacea, erythema, skin burning sensation. And then efficacy. So in the study, we are also talking about, did it work? And my question is, did we see tachyphylaxis? So did it work as well at month six, and at month nine, and at month 12, as it did in those first three months, like in the pivotal trial? And this is results going across. I don't know if you can read the bottom. The first one is baseline, hour zero. And then all of the others are hour three at baseline, week one, month one, month three, month six, month nine, and month 12. So what do you think there? Is that continuing to get better? It looks like it is to me. And now let's look at some clinical photos of the same thing. So here is a woman, baseline, hour three. You're going to have the opportunity to look at this same woman now at different time points. So kind of put her baseline photo in your head, okay? Look at that picture. Put your baseline photo in your head. Okay, now let's look at month six, hour zero and then hour three. Now we're gonna look, I think the next one is month 12. Let's look. Month 12, and look at that baseline picture. You know, so if you ask yourself about things like tachyphylaxis or rebound, and then you look at a clinical photo like that, I'll have to ask you to draw your own conclusions there about what you think you see here. But it seems overall, and we saw that in that, in that graph too, continued improvement over the long-term study in these individuals. So the conclusions from the long-term study, again, no new safety signals were seen with the long-term chronic use. Um, the, the AEs, the discontinuation due to AEs, did not increase over time. In fact, if that was going to happen, most of the time that happened early on in the study. And then that contact sensitization of about 1%. Important safety information. Um, I could sit here and let you read all of this in detail. Let's go to warning and precautions. So um, I'm going to mention this because we've got patients who read package inserts and call you. This says, Merveso gel should be used in caution with patients, in patients with depression, cerebral or coronary insufficiency, Raynaud's phenomenon, orthostatic hypotension, and on and on. I will tell you, and, and we're familiar with this with other topical drugs that we have, this is called class labeling. Uh, there was no evidence in any of these studies that depression was something that was worsened by use of topical bromonidine. But I do want you to know that that is in the package insert, but it's in there as, as part of what we call class labeling. Okay, and then inflammation and rosacea. This is great lunchtime material. Kind of heavy stuff, right? Do you have this whole little flowchart memorized? How many, raise your hand if you've heard about cathelicidins. Right. We don't think about cathelicidins very often. I've got another story, though, that helps to explain what cathelicidins are. So cathelicidins are part of the body's innate immunity. They're a very first line of defense against uh, bacteria, for example, or, or other invaders to the skin. There was a study done by Rick Gallo um, a while back, and he took, this was just kind of a, a quick study, he took a bare hand and a gloved hand, and he put those hands into basically E. coli. I would not want to volunteer for that study. 
and then he took those hands and he transferred them to an auger plate. Which hand transferred more bacteria? The bare hand or the gloved hand? I'm not going to go on until somebody says it. Right, the gloved hand. And that's because the bare hand had cathelicidin, okay? So the bare hand had summonate immunity. It wasn't waiting for an autoantibody to be developed. It wasn't waiting for the body to recognize. It immediately had a cathelicidin effect or an innate immunity effect, okay? So cathelicidin is good. It is necessary. It promotes inflammation where we need it. It kills bacteria where we need it. There's some evidence that there's a skin disease out there that may not have enough cathelicidin. And that group of people is frequently super infected. Who might that be? Think bleach water baths. Who might that be? People with like atopic dermatitis. There's some evidence that they don't have enough cathelicidin. But what happens if you have too much cathelicidin turned on? Now you've got too much inflammation. And that, we think, is part of what's going on in rosacea. So this is normal cathelicidin processing. Here we've got cathelicidin precursor. We've got normal calocrine 5 sitting there turning on this process, so taking the cathelicidin precursor to normal cathelicidin. And as we said, when that's working like it's supposed to, we've got good immunity. We've got bactericidal effects, angiogenic effects. But what if we've got too much calocrine 5? Okay, too much calocrine 5. So now we turn this cathelicidin on over time. And in fact, that LL37, I know this is a little hard to follow, but that LL37 has also been injected into a mouse model, and it actually caused telangiectasia and inflammatory papules. So this seems to be an important part, potentially at least, of the pathogenesis of rosacea. Well, we're going to transition now and talk about using doxycycline. Does doxycycline have any impact in this pathway? Well, you know, it probably does. And what's interesting, I'm going to show you the graph on the next slide, but I want to tell you where it probably works is it blocks that calocrine 5. So look up there and see where that is, because I think this chart to me is a little bit easier to understand than the next diagram. Matrix metalloproteinases, MMPs, turn on that calocrine 5, and doxycycline blocks the MMP. You know, we often talk about the tetracyclines. Doxycycline is anti-inflammatory. But if we push very hard back on that and say, okay, please tell me how doxycycline is anti-inflammatory. What's the mechanism of action there? Well, this is likely one of those ways. It impacts MMP, downregulates that, and in, and in turn downregulates this whole cathelicidin pathway. I want to transition now. So we're going to talk clearly about, and we just have a few more slides. We're hanging in there great. But doxycycline. When I started out today talking about, and maybe my meatloaf story was lost on you, it might have been, I apologize if it was, but we've used full doses of doxycycline for so long to treat this condition. And yes, that would have an impact on that matrix metalloproteinase too. But when I ask you the question, what is the pathogen in rosacea? Well, at least as far as we know right now, there's not one. So can we take a drug like Oratia, isolate the dose, get it down far enough that it's not antimicrobial, that it's truly just anti-inflammatory and still make rosacea better and impact people's lives. Let's, let's see if we can do that. I was diagnosed with rosacea um, when I was in my, probably my late 20s. I would, con I would consider mine moderate. It makes me very self-conscious. Um, it frustrates me that I'm not able to use a lot of facial products that I would like to be able to use. 
makes me feel not as pretty as what I would like to, you know, not as pretty as I'd like to feel. Since my last visit here, uh, my rosacea has improved uh, dramatically. I would describe my rosacea today as almost clear. I have noticed a great improvement in my rosacea since that photo was taken. I feel much better about the way I look now, much better. I feel a lot more confident in my appearance now. I don't feel nearly as self-conscious as what I did 12 weeks ago. I really, really like the oratia. I really like the results that I have seen, in the last, especially in the last six weeks. The oratia is very easy to take. I, I put it on my nightstand, and, and um, as soon as I wake up in the morning, I take it. If I had a choice, I, yes, I would continue to uh, take oratia. I have been uh, very happy with the results of the oratia, very pleased with how my complexion has, has looked better than it has in many, many, many years. What do you guys think of that? That's really why we do what we do. Okay, so Oratia is the only FDA-approved oral therapy indicated for the inflammatory lesions of rosacea. It's a once-daily capsule that's uniquely formulated with immediate-release 30-milligram beads and then also 10-milligram delayed-release beads. So this is not just 40 milligrams. This is not the same as just a 40 milligram that would all release at one time. It's proven efficacy, and we just saw that even in that last video. Now, I think it's tempting at times if you have a person sitting in front of you and they have perhaps really, really bad um, rosacea. I think it's easy sometimes to think, oh, higher dose must mean more efficacy than lower dose. I'll start at a higher dose, and then I'll transition to a lower dose. I'll get them better with the higher dose, and then we'll go to the safety of this FDA-approved product. But Jim Del Rosso did this nice study several years ago where he compared doxycycline 100 milligrams QD with your Oratia product 40 milligrams QD. And look at this, and I would challenge you to say, did the doxy 100 kick in faster? Did it overall give a better result at 16 weeks in the study? And so when we really go to look at the evidence for doing that, we, we can't find it here. The products worked quickly, both of them did, and they worked equally well in this study. Now there was something in this study that was not equal. Guess what that was? GI side effects, okay? So now looking at the adverse events here, Oratia on the left here and Doxy on the right, you can see more of those GI side effects with the higher dose of doxycycline than you do with the 40 milligrams. What makes Oratia different? Oratia is swallowed, the pill then breaks apart, and it releases both types of beads, both the 30 milligram immediate and the 10 milligram delayed. And really the main purpose of that is to keep this blood level low, overall low, and stable over a 24 hour period. And that's important for this reason. Have you all seen this slide before? So I think one of the main stories with oration, and I have, have talked for many, many years about being good stewards of our antibiotics, prescribing drugs that are effective for rosacea, but also being responsible prescribers. So if we've got a condition like rosacea that does not have a pathogen, do we really need to use doses that are coming up over? This, this horizontal line here is a threshold for being seen by bacteria for the most part. Once you cross that, you know, antibacterial resistance is just natural selection. Once bacteria can see you, so to speak, they can then develop resistance, and a certain amount of them are going to. 
The top curve there in the darker color is doxycycline 50 milligrams. Okay, so we do not need to confuse oratia with just low dose doxycycline. They are different. 50 milligrams is pretty low dose. But is it, but is it just anti-inflammatory? No. It's crossing up over this threshold and thus can potentially induce resistance. But because of the way oratia is packaged with the 30 milligrams and then the 10, the blood level stays well below that threshold during the entire 24-hour period. Well, what evidence do we have that resistance is really not an issue with this? Is this just something that we're hopeful for? Is this just hypothesis? Well, we've got a nine-month study, and this is a study from the periodontal literature. So it's looking at people who had periodontal disease, and they were having... Uh, I think it's called scaling and root planing, something that doesn't sound very fun. But they were checking for resistance during the study, comparing those who were receiving oratia versus those who were receiving vehicle. If you look carefully at the numbers, look at the oratia line there. The baseline number on oratia is higher than the baseline with placebo. And then if you look at nine months, the oratia number is higher than the mean on the other side. And that's because resistance levels change. Um, at different time points. So what's important to look at here, and I'm going to show you, it's going to highlight it, is did it change during the study? Did the numbers change? And in fact, it didn't. So the change in resistance with oratia was similar, not statistically significantly different from the change seen in those individuals who were on placebo. So we have nine months of data that shows no resistance, at least in the periodontal disease. So in summary, this is a unique once-daily immediate-release 30 milligram and delayed-release 10 milligrams. Uh, Oratia remains below the antimicrobial threshold, and it's been shown to be effective, well-tolerated, works as well as doxycycline 100 milligrams once a day. And then safety information here. Uh, warnings and precautions. Look there. We always have to add some of these in here. Oratia should not be used to treat infection. Uh, and I think that's not a negative, that's a very positive statement here saying that this is not a product that is going to be an antimicrobial. This is truly an anti-inflammatory product. And I think that's really it. So what we were trying to focus here is on the change in our understanding of the pathogenesis of the disease and then focusing on some new ways to target both the persistent facial erythema but also the inflammatory papules and and pustules over Asatia. So thank you for your attention. I might add you've been a very quiet group. Was your lunch that good? I'd be happy to answer any questions if you have any questions. And if you want to catch me in the back for some other questions, you can. Yes? You apply Merveso gel once a day. Once a day. Okay, thank you. <laughs>